0: It's, um, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning and to be gathered once again on the first day, of the Lord's Day. We're a forgetful people, and it's a good thing that the Lord set it up for us to gather together every week because we need it. And this is a, is a holy gathering when we come together. This is very, if you gathered with people last night, this is not the same thing. It doesn't matter what you did. This is a different holy kind of gathering when we gather to worship God. We worship the God who speaks. Uh, Jeremiah mentions in chapter 10 of his uh, prophecy how the gods of the people are are just these created and carved little things. It's gold that came out of the dirt or wood that was chopped down. and he, He compares that to the God who speaks, and that's the one that we worship. Psalm 96 says, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens, and he's the one that we are here to worship this morning. So, Welcome to that worship. Well, uh, now for about a month or so, we find ourselves between major series. If you're visiting with us or new and not familiar where we've been, uh, last week we just finished a two-year walk through the book of Romans, through the epistle that Paul wrote to the Roman church. So we find ourselves now for the first time in two years not in Romans, and we're, we're moving towards Exodus, that's where we're going next. But, you know, I was thinking about this recently. I, I'm so grateful that, that that boat moves slowly at Four Corners. Because what happens is, the book that we are in just comes to define us as a church. Uh, so that I look back on the last eight years of my life at Four Corners, and my life has been defined by John and the Sermon on the Mount and Titus and And Genesis, and now Romans. I don't know if I'm missing any in the last several years, Um, but that's what happened. The last two years, Romans has been so heavy and constant in our minds that it just has become to define us, and now we look forward to that happening with Exodus, and who never knows what the Lord will do after that, but I praise God for that, and I praise God that that boat moves slowly at four corners so that we spend time there, and we marinate there, and I think that's what has happened. Well, uh, over the next month, like I said, we're between major series. And um, I've been preaching through Philippians as I have opportunity. So we're, we're going to be uh, concluding chapter one soon. Uh, in the next month, I'll be preaching three times, Lord willing. Uh, and then next week, as the elders are away on our retreat, uh, we're going to have the privilege of Tony Carter, who's the pastor of East Point Church. Uh, we, we, we do a lot with them. We're very kindred with them. Uh, Kindred Churches and Coney is going to come and supply the pulpit for us next week. So look forward to that. Uh, So we'll have Philippians this week, Tony next week, and then two more weeks of Philippians, Lord willing, and then we will jump from there into Exodus. Well, if you would please turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, We are going to be today in verses 18 through 26 I'm going to have you go ahead and stand. We have a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump right into the text. Philippians chapter 1. We have left Romans, but we are still here with our friend Paul in Philippians. And we're going to read today, beginning in verse 12 through verse 26. This is the word of the Lord, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, and written by Paul, and read by the church in Philippi. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers, in the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As I said, this is the God who speaks. We read the spoken revelation the the written revelation of God and and, uh, let's pray that He would see us through to hearing His word faithfully this morning. God, we've come to worship you today. We've done that in song and through prayer and through reading of your Scripture, and now we do that through the exposition of your word, the God who speaks. God, so many different reasons for people being here this morning, so many different levels of exposure to this particular text. Some may have heard those words for the first time in their lives just now, but I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to us now through what you have to say in your word pray you would do the same for our children as they are in the back hearing the the promises from from Numbers this morning of what you are doing with your people in Israel in the wilderness and I pray God that those the consistent hearing of the word of God taught by them, their hearing would be fruitful over the course of their lives and that you would pour as, as Paul says in Romans 5 pour the love of God into their hearts. pray that you would do that for our children. And for those here this morning that don't know you, God, I pray that you would do that, whether through this text and the pricking of their hearts by the Holy Spirit or through your word some other time, I pray that none here would perish. So we, we worship you, and we know that we can only do so faithfully by your Spirit this morning. And we're expecting for that to happen, expecting for him to work in our hearts. This we pray in the name of your son, amen. Well, for its considerable short length, Philippians seems to have a considerable number of these memorable one-liners. We, we came to one already in chapter 1, verse 6, when Paul said, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a memorable Pauline one-liner we have maybe a notorious one in chapter 4 verse 16 that's been vomited all over gym, gymnasiums and workout rooms and on top of you know study notes and that kind of thing that says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength those are pretty memorable one-liners um, but today in our text I we have what might be the most memorable and the most recognizable Pauline one-liner Verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is, it is beautiful in its simplicity, yet it is inexhaustible in its profundity. And, and so much could be said of that verse that I toyed around with the idea of doing a sermon just on verse 21 and just, just wringing it dry until I had nothing left to say. And we could do that. And and many of the the sermons that you'll hear preached in this area of Philippians, if you just find one on the internet, we'll do just that. Just ring verse 21 drag because there's so much there. But as I studied this passage, I realized that you really cannot separate verse 21 from what comes around it. And not because of what you might think. It's, It's not really in danger of being brought out of context. We'll talk about that. Uh, But verse 21 really is a universal maxim. That's not the danger. The reason we can't really peel verse 21 out is because in the context of the rest of the verses around it, verse 21 is the hinge around which the entire passage turns of 18 through 26. Or you could say, if you think of an arch, that verse 21 is the keystone that sits at the top that holds all of the stones together. So we will take verse 21 together in this whole section. We could sit here and ring out verse 21 and an hour would not be long enough. A hundred hours would not be, a lifetime of hours would not be long enough to ring it dry. But we will preach it with the rest of the larger passage, recognizing that this is the hinge. The The whole passage is either driving towards verse 21 or it's flowing out of verse 21. Paul's Paul's writing revolves around Philippians 1, 21 in this text. All of these verses that we read this morning, 12 through 26, they constitute a, a block, a, an update from Paul to the Philippian church. If you remember last time, the last sermon, I know it wasn't last week, but the last sermon in Philippians was on verses 12 through 18. And there, Paul was updating them on the status of his ministry at large. He's in prison, of course. The last two years have not gone as planned for him, and the Philippians may have been wondering, what is the status of Paul's ministry? What, what's happening with the progress of the gospel there in Philippi, given that Paul is in prison? And as he updates them on these things in those verses, he speaks of the unbound gospel, It was the title of the previous sermon that Paul speaks of the unbound gospel. Despite the circumstances, the gospel is continuing to advance among unbelievers, even among Caesar's household. And it is advancing among believers because Paul's imprisonment has strengthened the Christians in Rome to be more bold. So the gospel is advancing among those believers. Yes, there has been some slight opposition, but no, no worries for Paul because his ultimate desire is that Christ is being preached, and that is happening. Christ is being preached, and the gospel is advancing, so that gives him reason for rejoice. So in those verses, Paul is pointing to the larger effects of his ministry in and around Rome. And now in today's verses, 18 through 26, Paul turns to update them on his own personal status. He's given an update on what's going on out there, and now he gives them an update on what's going on in here. The ministerial update pointed to the unbound gospel, and now his personal update points to the Christ of life and death. That's the title of today's sermon, the Christ of life and death. In death. Now, I know these sermons aren't back-to-back, but I want us to see how they are connected. Well, I think we legitimately could have, could have called these Status Update Part 1, The Unbound Gospel, and Status Update Part 2, The Christ of Life and Death. And when we see the continuity between these two, we see evidence of something that we observed when we began this series in Philippians, that it is primarily a letter focused on two things— Christ and the gospel. As Paul provides updates, those are the things that rise to the surface the unbound gospel and the Christ of life and death. Even in the word count, this is evident. So in chapter one, if we don't consider connectives and prepositions and pronouns and those kind of things, there is no theological words. That appear more frequently in chapter one than Christ and Gospel. It's numbers one and number two, in terms of word count, even in chapter one. And just last week, we heard a reminder of how these two things are connected. As Romans finished, this is what we read from Paul: that God strengthens according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. These are not separate things. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. So, so when Paul wrote to Corinth, what was of first importance, he says, when he came to Corinth, which was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, was still of first importance to him as he wrote to Rome and finished his letter. And now it's still of first importance to him as he writes to the Philippians years later. The Christ of life and death and the gospel of, are still the two things in Paul's mind that are primary. It's in Corinthians, it's in Romans, it's in Philippians. Clearly, those are the larger umbrella themes of Paul's life. And those are the larger umbrella themes of Philippians under which we walk as we move through this letter. The gospel and Christ. And this morning, as we read this update on Paul's own personal status, we get a peek into his mind. It's like, what, what makes Paul tick? What are, the, what are the foundations of why Paul does what he does? Why does he operate? That's what we get a, a chance to look into this morning as Paul gives this personal update. And when we peek behind the curtain, we find three features of Paul's mindset as he talks about the Christ of life and death. And these are our three points this morning, or I might refer to them as as mile markers. These are not necessarily points. Paul's not thinking about these things as he writes, but these are just the mile markers that tell us where we are in the text as we move through. And those three features that we find in his mindset are his singular aspiration, his personal deliberation, and his eventual expectation. Expectation. So we'll begin there with his singular aspiration. Paul's rejoicing is the transition that serves between his ministerial update and his personal update. Uh, In the previous verse, the fact that Christ was being proclaimed was reason for him to rejoice. That was verse 18a. But now as he thinks of his personal situation, there is another reason that launches him into rejoicing, that launches him into pulling back the curtain. And we see this in 18b through 20. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's reason for rejoicing now is that he is confident that his situation will turn out for his deliverance. Now, we've observed before that that Paul refers strikingly little to the gravity of his situation, Uh, Back in verse 12, he simply said, what has happened to me? And those of you that have gone through Acts recently realize that it takes Luke eight chapters to uncover what has happened to me in Acts. And then a couple times he refers to his chains as symbolic of his imprisonment. And then now in verse 19, he simply says this, this will turn out for my deliverance. Well, The this that Paul is referring to here is the unknown of his prison sentence. He's not quite sure how it will turn out. The harsh reality for Paul is that whenever he does get to appeal, he's not really in a sentence, by the way. He's he's just kind of in a holding pattern right now. He's not been sentenced. He's just waiting to hear. So when it does come time for him to hear uh, for his, his case to be heard at the tribunal, he, he does not know if it will end in his death or in his release. I think it's not a stretch to say that for Paul, every day wakes up not knowing if the day will end executed or free. The unknown hangs ever before him, yet we hear the words of a very confident man. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. And it makes us scratch our head a little bit. Like in the, in the same breath, he's, he's confident. And at the same time, he, he doesn't have any clue what's going to happen. Well, the translation of the word deliverance doesn't really do us any favors um, most, most of the uh, translations use this word, deliverance, and, and I don't know of a better one, to be quite honest. But we do need to understand what he means by deliverance, because on the surface, deliverance kind of makes it sound like Paul is suggesting deliverance from death, deliverance from this physical situation. But in verse 20, he clearly is saying that, that whatever happens is going to happen by life or by death. And then, and then furthermore, that's just the tone of this whole passage. Paul is ultimately unconcerned with whether he lives or dies. That, quite frankly, seems to be immaterial for Paul. So whether he lives or dies is of little significance. So his cause for rejoicing doesn't come from the fact that he is sure of his release. So deliverance must not mean then release. The word technically means salvation. Not technically, it is the word for Salvation. Which would lead us to think, well, maybe Paul is rejoicing because he knows whatever happens, it will result in my final salvation. I will be secure in the end. But the way he speaks in verse 20, he, he says that this is going to happen now and it's going to happen in my body. And, and those aren't eschatological things. Those are, those are like now, flesh and blood, going to happen soon, imminent kind of things, now and in my body So it seems like Paul's rejoicing in this deliverance does not come from the fact that he knows he's going to be released, and it doesn't come from the fact that he knows he's going to be saved. Those are kind of the low-hanging fruits for how we might interpret this, but neither of those really fit. Fortunately, Paul just interprets this for us himself in verse 20. If he stripped down verses 19 and 20, it's it's really a complex sentence. If you kind of just strip down all of the embedded phrases, you get a paraphrase that sounds like this. I know this will turn out for my deliverance because it is my expectation that Christ will be honored in my body. So Paul's continued rejoicing is rooted in the confidence that Christ will be honored in his body no matter how things turn out. That's what he calls his deliverance. If I could just uh, concisely use a quote here to summarize this from, from Walter Hansen, he speaks of what deliverance means. What Paul is talking about in this context is neither salvation from execution nor salvation in heaven, but a salvation of the Spirit of Christ in the present and empowering to be a bold witness for Christ. This is Paul's singular aspiration, that Christ would be honored and magnified in the way that I live my life or the way that I die my death. That is his deliverance. His singular aspiration is that as his his situation progresses to a resolution, whatever that may be, he would remain a powerful and bold witness for Christ. You might notice the carryover from Paul's attitude in the previous set of verses. In, in verse 12, uh, verses 12 through 18, that last chunk of text ended with Paul rejoicing that Christ was being proclaimed. His, his singular aim was that Christ be proclaimed out there among unbelievers, by the, 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 the Christian brothers. And now his singular personal aspiration is that Christ be proclaimed through his own conduct as his situation is resolved. So his concern has not changed. Throughout these updates, Paul's concern has not changed. The subject has changed. May may Christ be proclaimed out there, and may Christ be proclaimed in here, in my situation. Specifically, he says, in my body. With real actions, in conduct, in words. I might think Paul could have just said, may Christ be proclaimed in my, in my life, or something more general. No, in my body, in the way that I carry myself through this, may Christ be proclaimed. This is the outworking of his theology. This is, this is the guy that wrote, after all, Romans 12, 1, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I went back and looked at my notes from that sermon in Romans, and this is what Lonnie observed there. What we do with our bodies demonstrates where our true affections lie. Paul is intent on whatever happens at his trial, life or death, he conduct himself in such a way that points to where his true affections lie. This is his primary concern in the face of life or death. You know, we're not confronted with life and death sort of in our face every day. Yet we, we do face many unknowns. And how often is it that our main concern in the face of these smaller unknowns is mainly the resolution of our situation? right? The, the relief from this discomfort, the relief from this anxiety, that's what needs to go. Yet in the face of the ultimate unknown, life or death, Paul's singular concern is that Jesus be Glorified. In this singular aspiration of Paul that Christ be honored mirrors the central target of all of human history. That is, the renown and magnification of the Son of God, Jesus, is the central target of all of human history. Walt prayed this in his prayer this morning from Philippians 2. As long as time exists, every second is marching forward to the time when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where history is headed. We see that in that scene from John that he describes in Revelation 5. This was part of our call to worship this morning. He looked into the heavens and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels were saying in a loud voice, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom might honor glory and blessing." And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor glory and might forever and ever that's where this is all headed the honoring of Christ is the end of all things and he lives inside of you the the one that will be magnified in that way is in you now If you're a Christian, every day you walk, think think about this, every day you walk around with the premier treasure of the universe in your body. Wow. Your life, your death, everything wrapped up in there that your body does is intended to be a display case to show off the premier treasure of the universe. If you're a Christian, what more do you need to bring power and purpose to everything you do this week than that? That's the mindset of Paul. His ultimate concern is not life or death or a specific resolution. There is a, there is a higher overarching concern in all of our lives as Christians. It is not contingent on outcome. It is the concern to display Christ in our bodies as the supreme, premier treasure of the universe, that we might conduct ourselves in all things to show where our true affections lie. That is Paul's singular aspiration as he faces this unknown. He's confident that he will honor Christ in the remainder of his situation. But his confidence is not without good reason. This is not confidence in himself. It's not that he's just followed Jesus for a long time and he's, he's trained up enough to finally take on this last final challenge. Not it. His confidence, in fact, doesn't come from within him at all. It comes from without. And it comes from without in two ways. He has confidence because of a sure supply and because of a sure hope. He has a sure supply He knows his deliverance will come, he says in verse 19, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He has partners in Philippi that are praying for him, and he knows that the Spirit is supplying or helping him and giving him what he needs. These are not separate components. The prayers of the Philippians and the supply of the Spirit function together. Paul trusts that God will use the prayers of his friends as the means for supplying the Spirit in whatever means necessary so that he will persevere to honor Christ through the rest of his situation. Outside of Paul, there is both human and divine agency at work in his being kept as a faithful witness. I'll just mention this quickly a high view of God's sovereignty does not diminish the importance in the power of prayer. It's the opposite. This is a reminder for us that it pushes us to pray knowing that in his providence, God uses the prayers of other Christians as a means to bring about his purposes in our life. It's a reminder for us to be, to be actually praying for the spiritual good of one another. Praying that our brothers and sisters might be found mature in Christ. Praying that the love of God would be poured into their hearts more and more. They would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. They would, be, they, they would honor God in their bodies. Those are not fruitless prayers. God, those are the very things God uses to grow us. In conjunction with the word. But Paul is confident here because from without, he has praying friends and a God who generously supplies his spirit. But he also has a sure hope. He writes in verse 20, that is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body. It's, it's always appropriate to remind ourselves that uh, hope in the Bible is, is, is very different from the way we use the word hope. It's not a self-willing, it's not a wishful thinking, it's not just a wishing something will happen. But as one commentator said, Paul's confidence is rooted in the fact that God is God and he has underwritten the future. God is God and he has underwritten the future. And he has promised to preserve his children, those who are truly his God will preserve Paul through the resolution of this situation, however it turns out. And Paul knows that God has underwritten that promise. That's kind of the positive aspect of his hope. But there's a negative direction to his hope. He's certain that I will not at all, not be at all ashamed. This would have been shocking to read in the first century. Some of you guys may be familiar and have spent time in, in other cultures where there's this honor-shame dynamic. That would have been shocking to read here from Paul, his confidence, knowing that he would not be ashamed in the face of his situation. There there would have been much shame in in being held as a prisoner, And, and there would have been ultimate shame in being executed by the state as a prisoner. So with this kind of background, some may have been reading this in Philippi and would have been uh, been puzzled by his confidence. How can you be so confident, Paul, that you won't be ashamed? Because if you're killed, that's the ultimate shameful thing. Where does your confidence come from? Well, once again, Paul is showing us here that he's just operating on a different level than the rest of the world. He's just on a different plane than the rest of the world. If you remember in the previous passage, there were some folks that were, who were preaching with impure motives out of a desire to afflict Paul in prison. And, and he responded to that showing that he's just, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't on that level. He, he basically responded to that by saying, look, I'm not playing that game. That game of territory and rivalry and, and kind of hurt feelings. I'm, I'm operating on a different level than the rest of you. And he essentially does the same thing here. See, look, I'm not playing that game of societal norms and cultural pressures and expectations. Those are the concerns of the world. Paul's saying, look, I'm in Christ. There's no condemnation in Him, and there is no shame, period, no matter what they do to me. And this is the case for all Christians. Friends, we as Christians, we are dead to ourselves and we are, re- we are alive in Christ, meaning we are, we are released from the need to play those games. We are released from the need to, to save face or to put on. We're released from the need to preserve our image or play into those cultural games. It is, it is absolutely unchristian the way in the church We can posture ourselves and put on for others. Who are we trying to impress? I pray that the Lord would rid that if that is found here, if that is found in you. I pray the Lord would rid this place of that because the gospel has done away with all kinds of deception and maneuvering. Our identity is in Christ alone, not in our perception, not in our status, not in the way the culture or whoever else sees us. This is exactly why we can be in fellowship with each other. This is why we can confess sin to each other. This is why we can practice church discipline corporately on Sunday nights when necessary. This is why we can challenge each other because who are we? but dead to the world and to ourselves and united to Christ. Paul is redefining what it means for Christians to be ashamed. He's not even talking about those things at all. For the world to be ashamed would be to stoop below your expected status, to be humiliated. But as Christians, we've died to everything that the world has to offer, status and titles included. You can't stoop us low enough to shame us. Because our life is hid with Christ in God. How could we possibly be ashamed in the way the world is ashamed? We're dead to that. That's not what would be shameful for Paul. What would be shameful for Paul is if at the end he failed to honor Christ. Christ. The worst thing for Paul is if he did not honor Christ. The worst thing you can do today is to fail to honor Christ. We have so many concerns, so many things we're out to avoid. We're out to avoid bad grades. We're out to avoid a small retirement account. We're out to avoid fights in the home. We're out to avoid all of these things. But listen, the worst thing you can do is to fail to honor Christ. If you're going to avoid something, we must avoid that. That is shame for the Christian. Paul's hope reinterprets how we understand shame, how we understand success and failure. His hope is not, his hope is in the, the promise of God to preserve his own and that none will be lost. That's why Paul's confident. Because his hope is that none can snatch out of God's hand. God will keep him faithful to Christ to the end. That is his singular aspiration. To honor Christ no matter what happens. And he rejoices because he is confident that he will indeed honor Christ. Because one, God preserves his own to the end. That's his sure hope. And two, he has praying friends and a generous God. That's his sure hope supply. Well, this marks our second mile marker. Now, as we leave verse 20 and we move into Paul's personal deliberation. Notice the structure of the text. After reading verse 20, uh, the Philippians or some may have been wondering, how is it that Paul's greatest desire is to honor Christ? Whether by life, I get that part, but what about by death? Well, Paul's been driving towards that answer. If you diagram this sentence, uh, verse 21 is kind of in the, in the heart of it. It all is sort of flowing towards verse 21. He's been driving towards that answer. He's been drilling down into the, the bedrock of his own deepest foundation. In the explanation of his bold statement in verse twenty that I, I honor Christ, whether by life or by death, comes in verse 21. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is now intensely personal for Paul. He says, this is the case for me, as he reveals his deepest affections. For Paul, Christ is all in life and death. Whether I live Christ is all, life is all about Christ. Whether I die, I get to be with Christ. Christ is the supreme passion. It's the supreme distinctive of Paul's being. There's no other higher definitive aspect of Paul's being than defined by Christ. This is not unique to Paul. Paul. Now, we're always careful to read in context, of course, but this one, as I said, really is a universal truth for the Christian, even on its own. The reason is because this is what Jesus demands. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 14. This is what Walt read as our scripture reading earlier. me in Luke 14 Paul is uh, Jesus excuse me been in Paul too long Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship and he's explaining that it will cost you everything if you intend to follow me hating even your own life He says in chapter 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hating even his own life in comparison to the supreme value of serving Jesus. At the end of this passage that Jesus Talks about the cost of discipleship in Luke 14, verse 33. So therefore, if any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce, Jesus said. The Olympics are on. Some some, some countries require, if they want to have dual citizenship, they have to renounce Uh, other citizenship in order to participate in their country to say I have I have no claim over that territory over the privileges that come with belonging to that place I give them up for the sake of something else this is what Jesus requires of every one of his followers to renounce everything to follow him this is what all the disciples did follow me James and John Peter and Andrew they got out of the boat Peter and Simon they got out of the boat They left it all. This is the kind of devotion Jesus demands. It's what we hear from Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, menstrual rags is what they are and compared to the worth of following Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus demands. He's not a nice guy who is just okay with you continuing to do your own thing. He demands complete and total devotion to himself. The gospel according to Jesus is that Jesus is all, period. He cannot be most. He definitely cannot be some. And he cannot be all plus my business. Or all plus my whatever. This is a necessary word for us today. We may have been in church for a long time. You may have heard the stories and know the verses and know where the stuff is in the Bible and know the songs. You might even be a member of this church. Being a member of this church is not the final assurance you need that you're a Christian. It's part of it, which is why you should become a member. But it's not the final assurance you need If you were to take an honest reflection of your concerns and priorities and your fears and your desires and you could not honestly say Christ is all, you are not a Christian. I don't care what you have been told. I don't care how long you've been in the church. If your answer is not Christ is all, you are not a Christian because that's what it means to be a Christian. If you cannot say to live is Christ, Death will not be gained for you. Do not be deceived. There is no such thing as a tangential, peripheral relationship with Jesus now that leads to an afterlife of angels' wings and family reunion. That does not exist. If Christ is not all for you in life, death will not be gained. It will be eternally and horrifically miserable. That's what you have to look forward to if Jesus is less than all. So the call goes out to you today, whether you have been deceived or whether you come in here not knowing a lick of what we're talking about. The call goes out today to repent of your Christless pursuits and turn to him. The idols we talked about I talked about at the very beginning, those carved things. We don't really make them out of wood anymore. We dress them up and we turn them into cars and businesses and other desires and children and wives and husbands. Those are the things we serve. God will forgive you for, for chasing after idols. That's what He does if you turn to him. He's paid for that Jesus has on the cross. But he must be all. You must follow him in the way He requires in Luke 14 renouncing it all for him, counting it all as loss. To live is indeed Christ, Paul says. But both life and death are in view. You might expect Paul to say, to live is Christ and to die is Christ. But he says something even more shocking than that. Death is gain, And the reason that's so shocking is that death is an enterprise of loss. That's what it is. Think of all the things that death means the loss of. No more relationships are severed, right? Plans are canceled. Future potential is gone. The enjoyment of good things is no more on earth. So, in order for death to be gain, it must outweigh. All of the loss that is inherent in death. Right? That makes sense? If death is gain, it must be heavier than everything that loss is in death. I know some of us today, some of you might be feeling the the weight of the loss of death. It is indeed heavy. I know that. We grieve our fallen nature that it leads to physical death because those losses are real. Some of you know that all too well. But what goes on the other side of the scale so that death now becomes gain? Jesus outweighs all of it. That's what goes on the other side of the scale. Death is gain because Jesus outweighs anything this life has to offer. In verse 23, Paul will say that his desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. There's lots of debate over what that means to be with Christ. Is it, is it bodily? What about the future resurrection? What happens immediately? Is there an intermediate kind of? There's lots of debate there. But if, life is Christ, if all of life now for Paul is Christ, and death is gain over that, then whatever he means by be with Christ, it cannot be any, any, any less close than we are in life. So, so we can just take Paul at face value here. Immediately at death, we will be with Christ in some way. To be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Death is gain because it means being with Jesus. And that outweighs all the other things inherent in the loss of death. Some of you may be familiar with two fellows named Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Lattimore. Ridley and Lattimore were the most well-known English reformers uh, in the the 1550s. Uh, Lattimore was a preacher. Ridley was a professor. And they're well-known for being uh, martyrs for Christ under the reign of Queen Mary during the Reformation. She was Catholic. They were reforming. They were burned at the stake in October of that year, 1555. And there's a conversation recorded between Ridley and his family, the night before his execution, he's eating a last meal of sorts. And he speaks to his family about the tomorrow's events. And he calls them a marriage. He's actually, in, he's actually hoping his family will come to his marriage tomorrow. He saw his impending death as a union. That, that is what death was for Ridley. A union between himself and his Lord. At last, this is what he said. This is speaking the night before his execution. Though my breakfast shall be somewhat sharp and painful, I am sure my supper shall be more pleasant and sweet. Isn't that beautiful? Because death is an occasion for union. He was going to be with his Lord, united with his Savior at last. When death is gain, it is no longer an enterprise of loss. It's transformed into a cause for union with Christ. Notice how these two play into each other, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Death is only gain when Christ is all of life. Right? Death is only gain when Christ is all of life. If you spend your whole life making little of Jesus, how could Jesus be gained? Not to mention for the fact that those that make little of Jesus won't have an opportunity to be with Christ. Put that aside. Just think of the scale. If you've cultivated an entire life that says Jesus is insignificant and small in light, these are the heavy things. How could death be gained for you? It won't be gained. It'll be a letdown. Death is only gain when Christ is all of life because in death we get Christ. Which means, if you cannot say to live as Christ, do not say death is gain. Do not expect death to be gain. On the flip side, where death is seen as gain, only then are we free to make life all about Christ. We're free from those things those things that the world finds are so heavy and precious and compared to the light insignificant Christ, we are free from those because life is not about those. It's about Christ. We can confidently then say with Paul, we count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. Only when death is gain are we free to make Christ all of life. To live as Christ means that death will be gained. And when death is gained, it allows us to live as Christ in life. This maxim is true of every Christian. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Because for the Christian, for Paul, our supreme treasure is the Christ of life and death. We have banked everything on him. This is what Paul points to as his deepest foundation. The reason he says what he says about honoring Christ, whether by life or by death, is because for him to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is his bedrock foundation. These are the inner workings of his deepest affections. And as he goes there, he starts to play out the scenario in his mind, he deliberates. This has all been a peek into Paul's mind, and and now we get a deliberation from him. I'll just read verses 22 through 24. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's kind of like this is Paul's soliloquy. We've seen Shakespeare plays where, where one actor, you know, goes off in the corner by himself and he sort of talks to the, to the ceiling or to the floor and the whole audience is watching him just sort of in his own mind speaking, but everybody's witnessed. This is what we have here. Paul's just a soliloquy speaking to himself and we are witness to it. And he, 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 he doesn't really have the choice to choose. It sounds like he's trying to choose. It's not up to Paul. Paul's not making the decision. He's just, he's just kind of playing out the scenario in his own head. And he really is deliberating. Which one would I choose? I, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I have two good options before me. This gives us more insight into how Paul thinks. If he lives, that means fruitful labor for the gospel. This is, the, this is what we have seen of the apostle at the end of Romans. Not an aloof theologian, but this is life, fruitful gospel labor for Paul. That all of the theology pushes him out towards mission and people. The advancement of the gospel into frontier places and the strengthening of the gospel in in already established places. That's Paul's mindset in Romans and other places and we see that here that living means advancing the gospel. If I am to live, that means fruitful labor for me. Maybe he will get to go to Spain. Maybe he'll make it there. Maybe he'll make it back to Philippi and visit some of the other churches. Maybe he'll get to go who knows where that he's been before. Because life for him is fruitful labor for the gospel. If he were to live. But on the other hand, if he were to die, that means I get to be with Jesus. And that's just plain better than everything else. The issue for Paul is not so much whether he prefers to live or die, but whether he would prefer the fruitful labor of gospel ministry or the gain of being with Christ. If he were choosing, he's not choosing between the lesser of two evils. He's choosing between the greater of two delights. Because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the kind of mindset produced in Paul and all Christians who submit to Christ we get that peek into his mind his personal deliberation we see a foundation of Christ in all of life and all of death everything built on top of that but he does come to sort of a conclusion his eventual expectation find ourselves now at the third mile marker in verses 25 and 26 after his deliberation this is how he wraps it up Convinced of this, that is, convinced that it is more necessary to remain in the flesh on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. As he deliberates, he he settles on what possibly he thinks is going to be the expectation. It is not yet time for me to finish this race. It's not yet time for me to die. It's not that he's decided to live. Like I said, he doesn't have a choice in the matter. But his eventual expectation is that he will be released from prison. While he would personally prefer being with Christ, he knows that it is for the greater good of the gospel and for the Philippians if he he waits longer on earth. Once again, the good of the Philippians is in mind. He expects to live and hopefully see them again so that they might glory all the more in Christ Jesus, this one whom he has written so passionately about that he has split open his head and that Christ has poured out. That's the one he wants them to also glory in. It might strike you as a bit strange. It did me, to be honest, when I first started studying this, the way Paul says that you would glory in Christ Jesus in me and because of my coming to you again. It almost sounds like Paul Paul kind of sees himself as too important for the Philippians. Like, if he can't get there, they're maybe not going to be able to glory in Christ as well as they would otherwise. That's not what's happening, though. Paul is pointing to the result of Christian fellowship. You guys are going to be tired of hearing me say fellowship by the end of this book. But Paul's pointing to the result of Christian fellowship. We've talked at length already about their partnership in the gospel. That was chapter 1, verse 5. And we observe that throughout the book, we're going to see a three-way bond between Christ and Paul and the Philippians. They're bound together by the gospel. And we see that, the, that triangle of subjects, Christ, Paul, and the Philippians, in verse 26. In me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Because this is the fruit of Christian partnership, the, the fruit of fellowship is that one another would glory more in Jesus. That's the point of fellowship. Paul's not saying, I need to come teach you up. He's saying, no, the, the koinonia that we have together in the gospel will lead you to boast all the more in Christ. And I pray that it will lead me to boast all the more in Christ. We just talked last Sunday night, for those of you who are here in the members meeting, about uh, a Christian fellowship and what that looks like. Well, this is the fruit of that fellowship, to, to present one another mature in Christ because of our partnership. This is our mindset as church members. So I just, just want to ask you, in light of what Paul, Paul, Paul shows us as his example here, is that, is that the foundation of your relationships at Four Corners? Or are you here to have friends and whatever you think community means? The foundation of our relationship in this church is so that when I'm dead and you're dead, we would be more mature in Christ because of it. That's the point. That's what Paul shows us here. That by his continuing with the Philippians, he would be able to, uh, together with them, glory more in the Christ of life and death. As we close, I I just want to finish by pointing out the bookends of this passage. The larger passage from verse 12 all the way to 26. There's brackets around here. In verse 12, Paul mentions the advance of the gospel. And in verse 25, he mentions the Philippians' progress in the faith. It's the same word. It could be interchangeable. We could say the advance of the gospel and the advance of the Philippians' faith. But throughout these status updates and these last two sermons, Paul has never ventured from the main idea of the advance of the gospel. He started broad, concerned for the advance of the gospel at large among unbelievers in and around Rome, and now he he ends with a concern specific and personal, concerned with the advance of the gospel in the hearts of individual Christians, The gospel is for both advancing out into the world and advancing in your own heart. It's not relevant only for conversion, and then we just put it aside. But the gospel must be advancing in us even now. If you are breathing that Christian, that means the gospel has not done all of its work in you yet. It has not had its full effect yet, so may it ever be advancing in you. That's why Paul wanted to get back to the Philippians. That's why he was convinced that the Lord would keep him around, so that the gospel may be ever advancing as a result of his work and his ministry in the hearts of other Christians. And we see the two, the connectedness, once again, as we close, between Christ and gospel. The gospel advancing in your heart, which is where Paul ends, is being matured in Christ. Right? As the gospel advances, we are being matured in Christ. That's what gospel advance means. So we started noticing these two key themes, both in Romans and now in Philippians. And even as we close, we see the bookends of this passage connected to the Christ of life and death. These two primary concerns for Paul, the advance of the gospel and the Christ of life and death, may they be on our minds as a church, in what we do corporately, and as individuals. Let's pray. God, you have done a great work to save a people for yourself. Sending your Son to die on the cross, as we will read about so poignantly soon in Philippians chapter 2, is the work that you have done to save us and to rescue us from a future of eternal separation and misery. And God, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that the gospel is now revealed to us, as you say in Romans chapter 3. Your Righteousness is now manifested apart from the law. Praise God. God, I pray that as we collectively move from here as Christians that we would allow these words from Paul to settle on us and we would, we would think through what it means that Christ is life and death is gain and he's our singular aspiration. God, I pray for that in our hearts and I pray for those that may have been challenged or convicted, stirred or awakened, maybe even offended by those words. that You might work in their heart. That's the way we change. That's the way we go from darkness to marvelous light. It's because of the work of the Spirit. So I pray that your work, your Spirit would continue to do that work the rest of today, this week, in the lives of these people so that the Christ of life and death might be honored in our bodies all the more. We thank you for the Lord's Supper that we were about to partake of in the body of Christ that was broken, the blood that was spilled for us so that we could even be here at all today. We thank you for that. We pray that it would be a sweet time for us of corporate communion and lifting up our eyes to the ones to the one from whom our help comes. Amen.